time we were together, uh, we find these sort of various cycles in, in Hosea of bad news and good news, uh, which is a regular pattern in redemptive history of how God deals with, with man, deals with sinners, uh, but one that is, that is particularly in this book very hard to, to miss. Uh, as we read about the sins of Israel and the indictments against her and her wickedness and disobedience and the fact that judgment, Hosea says, is uh, imminent uh, and certain and there seems to be no escape, but through a remarkable reversal, uh, grace and mercy come flooding in and hope is, in the end, not extinguished. We've already seen that in a smaller way in chapter 1, but that will be sort of serve as an outline, if you will, for the entire book. Because when we get to chapter 4, we'll be hit hard with more bad news. Lots of bad news. Chapters of bad news. But by the time you get to the end of the book, we'll once again see the good news of God's grace and mercy and love. So uh, we we see this in chapter 1 with Hosea's commissioning to marry uh, Gomer in verse 2, a known prostitute. And then commanded to have, or told to have three children, which would prophetically uh, illustrate the, the coming judgments. So we have uh, Hosea and Gomer. Uh, then we have this firstborn son, uh, Jezreel. Uh, and if you made that name, or that noun, that proper noun into a verb, it would mean he will sow, uh, which in this context likely depicts a, a, a sort of a metaphorical scattering of God's people among the nations. Zechariah uh, chapter 10, verse 9 speaks about this. When we get to chapter 2 towards the end, we'll actually find a very similar word, but it will emphasize more of the sowing rather than the scattering. Uh, so it's actually used in different ways in different contexts. So we have uh, Jezreel, then we have um, the uh, second child, who was a girl, Elo Ruhamah, which means no mercy, uh, no more pity, uh, no more compassion. So God in, in, in this is sort of displaying that he's going to withhold his compassion, uh, his loving kindness, which is one of his, really, his, his key attributes of, of, of grace. Uh, so we'll talk more about that. Then there's a third child, another son, who was given a name which is really uh, catastrophic in its, uh, in its implications, lo-ami, which just simply means no people. You see this in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, The Lord said, Name him lo-ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Um, basically, you're not my people, and I'm not yours, or I am not yours. There's, there's, a, there's a connection here back to uh, God being revealing himself as the I am. Uh, and so he's basically saying, I am not your I am, uh, or I am not your Yahweh. So uh, that's some kind of bad news. I mean, just the names themselves convey a message to, uh, to Israel of what is uh, to come. And things appear to be hopeless at this point. Nevertheless, you'll notice there in chapter 1, verse 10, yet... The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. In verse 1 of chapter 2, this is kind of where we 
we ended last time. Say to your brothers, Ami, my people, and to your sisters, Rahamah, which again means compassion. So this is just God's, this is just his un, uh, just unexplainable, sovereign mercy. Uh, and he outlines these things that will happen. Future multiplication, prosperity, restoration, unification, uh, vertical reconciliation with the Lord that then impacts horizontal reconciliation and, and relationships and bringing these, uh, this nation that had been divided uh, at the end of Solomon's reign will be brought back together. So we ended last time with really on, with good news. So we saw the bad news, but then we saw at the very end some good news. Uh, this morning, uh, don't want to be... A, I don't want it to be a downer, but it's all bad news today. So <laughs> it's going to be all all bad news. Uh, but again, we'll get to some more. Uh, we'll get to some more good news uh, the next time. Now, uh, remember in, cha- in chapters one to three, Hosea is conveying the Lord's mes- message through powerful, dramatic means. So, in other words, this is the Lord is is asking Hosea to do some things that are conveying this. This message, and this was often the case with with uh, some of the prophets. So Hosea was commanded to marry this prostitute and to have children of prostitution for the purpose of illustrating what God is all about uh, about His character, as well as the adulterous history of the people of Israel. So these things actually happened in Hosea's life, but no, knowing that, you still have to be careful. I think not to get lost in the immediate details. So you're, you have to, this is not just some made up story. These things actually happened, but yet you have to remember that the Lord is behind all of this dealing with the nation and the individuals that make up that nation. So as we read these verses, we have to keep in mind that, that when you see the, the eyes and these, these pronouns, the, 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 eye, the eyes and the mys, those represent Hosea, but the Lord is behind that. And so you just got to realize there's, there's, there's this message that's being conveyed through Hosea and what he's being asked to do and what he does. Uh, as you go through this, you'll, you'll find the she's and the hers, which represent Gomer. But Gomer, of course, represents the totality of the adulterous nation uh, of Israel, and in some cases Judah, depending on the particular passage. Uh, and then there's the theys and the theirs, which represent these children of prostitution or whoredom who represent all the sinful sort of the individuals of those, of those nations. So let's resume here in verse 2 of chapter 2, which gives us additional details of the Lord's coming judgments uh, and mentions the commissioning of these children, interestingly, by Hosea to take their mother to court. Okay, so we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 2. Scripture says, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. 
She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, and her, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So I want to sort of break this into two parts uh, this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the anatomy of idolatry, uh, sort of what are some of the the things that we can learn about the, the characteristics of idolatry that were going on, some of the dynamics going on in, in, in the nation of Israel. And certainly we can take those things and in principle we can bring them into our own circumstances and our own experience and walk with the Lord and, and hopefully it will serve as a warning to us about a number of things. Uh, and then we'll look at the Lord's response to his, Israel's idolatry, uh, verses 6 to, to 13. So first let's just look at the anatomy of Israel's idolatry. You'll notice again there he says, Contend with your mother, in verse 2, Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. So this, this oracle begins with a call to the, if you will, the products of, of prostitution, the children, to contend with their mother, the adulteress. So this, this, this term contend, and you'll see it's, it's repeated here twice. It's on both sides. So contend with her and contend. It's just a term that means to strive with or to plea with or even in some cases to rebuke. The, the key thing here is that this is, um, this is legal language, right? It, it, and, and it crops up in the Bible uh, when the Lord is indicting His people. So it's as if the Lord is saying, I have all of this evidence and I'm going to bring indictments against you and I'm going to submit to you Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, Exhibit D, and he's going to lay all of this evidence out and then, of course, make this, this you know, concluding uh, uh, remark that judgment is coming as a consequence of all of that evidence. And so this is, this is lawsuit language, and it will show up again uh, in this book, for example, over in chapter 4, uh, in verse 1, says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Wow. I mean, there are no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God. I have a case against you. So again, this sort of this idea of the Lord bringing this nation before him and in this sort of a courtroom type of setting and context. Over in chapter 12, verse 2, we find this this term again. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah 
in this case, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Uh, We find this in other prophets, major and minor prophets. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 13 says, The Lord arises to contend, there's our term, and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It says, It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the plunder of the poor in uh, is in your houses. So again, he brings these this evidence before them. Micah chapter 6, verse 1, Now hear, now hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you, in, and, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel, He will dispute. So all that to say, this, this is, the Lord is not just like haphazardly dealing out <laughs> retribution, not just haphazardly punishing people. I mean, he, there's always, always, always justification for God to bring any kind of consequence, right? Any kind of judgment. We don't ever need to get the idea that God is just sort of just throwing these things out there and that there's, there's not justification behind what he's doing. Right, and so in every one of these cases, it's just it's it's just clear as can be. It's just saying the the arrangement was clear, right? It's just saying the arrangement was clear, the stipulations were clear. This is not a pop quiz, okay? God is not into doing what these wicked little teachers do sometimes. You know, where you you go into the class and and you're and you just you you can hardly carry your book bag and you're. You, you know, you're, you've lost this and you've lost that and you're having a hard day and the teacher says, okay, take out a piece of paper. We're having a pop quiz, right? Love that. Oh, I used to love that, right? Those, those dreadful teachers that would do such a thing, right? So now the, I like the teachers and I've had some of these that say, the day before, you're going to have a pop. Now think about this. This is kind of a, you know, I love those teachers. Tomorrow we're going to have a pop quiz, do that, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, the, and they still get mad when you give it, right? But I love those teachers. They're like, listen, I'm going to, it's, okay, we're going to call it a pop quiz, but I'm going to tell you what you need to know for this thing tomorrow, okay? When, when we stand before God, folks, this is not a pop quiz. This is not like, oh, you didn't know what you were supposed to do, right? I mean, this is, this is what Paul says in Romans. No man, is, no man has a valid excuse before the Lord. I mean, this is abundantly clear. And all God, all God is doing in these passages is just reinforcing their culpability. You knew better, right? This is not, I'm not sneaking up on you and surprising you. You knew the way that you should have been living and, and the priority, priorities you should have had spiritually. So this is, this is on you. And so the Lord's bringing that evidence. It's as clear as day. Now, the justification for pitting the children against their mothers found in this next verse, uh, this uh, verse 2, or the part, next part of this, for, or since, or because, she is not my wife, and I, and again, there's the emphatic terms in the verse, she and I, she is not my wife, I am not her husband, which brings to mind, so if we just read that back in verse 9 of chapter 1, and the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Right? So again, you see how Hosea's experience is, is there's, it's carrying a message. All these things are carrying a message. 
Uh, the ESV captures, I think, the intention well here. It says, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That, <clears throat> which is the hopeful goal here, that she puts away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So Hosea will confront Gomer again and again. Here he is instructed to use the children to do that, hopefully in, in maybe increasing uh, the pressure a bit. So the plea is for her to repent. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, is for her to acknowledge her ways and to repent. But the or else follows in verse 3. So this is, the, this is what she's done. I want you to go contend so that she will repent of what she's done. But if she doesn't do that, verse 3, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. The NIV is even more intense here. It says, otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. Okay. Now again, there's all kinds of I read a journal article this week. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing how much ink is, is spilled on some of these things. But this idea of stripping her naked and then, you know, the um, ancient Near Eastern culture and this whole concept of shame and, and how all, what was going on in those cultures at the time. But this, there's one, one in particular, this, this one gentleman that I read, he's a professor up at Southern Seminary and Boys College, really, really good article on this, talking about how we're so quick in biblical studies sometimes to go and to look into what the ancient, ancient Near Eastern cultures were doing around Israel, which is good information. But a lot of times we're trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. It's like that becomes the dominant thing. We have to find out what was going on in the ancient Near East because that obviously was impacting the way that Israel was behaving. And there might be some, some, some clues there or some things that support what the Scriptures say, but there is a danger, I think, in making that the main thing. And what he goes on to argue is just to say this idea of stripping her naked has less to do with the concept of shame uh, in, the, in that cultural setting and has much more to do with the uh, stipulations of the covenant which are in Scripture. But going back to Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I mean, this language is in, in the Pentateuch about what God will do if they... Uh, misbehave, that God will bring them to this point where essentially it's just saying that they will have nothing. God is going to reduce them down to, to nothing. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. So there's a, there, that's one consequence. And there's a second consequence in, the, in verse 3b. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land and slay her with thirst. So she will be sentenced to death by thirst, uh, which is something... It's quite frightening, honestly, but it was something. This whole issue of water uh, in, that, in that geographical context was a, a major concern, uh, the, the, the water supply. And so this is actually something that at its very beginning, you remember, the people accused Moses and God of doing in the wilderness, right? In fact, if you were to go back, let me just read a few verses from Exodus 17, says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt? 
to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So they're, 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 they had just been delivered from slavery, right? I mean, they're in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, and they're grumbling against Moses directly, but then even behind that, right? I mean, we have other texts that tell us they're grumbling and complaining against God himself and basically accusing God of, you brought us here to kill us with thirst. And so God brings this memory, I think, back to this particular rebellious generation of Hosea's day and reminds them, but reminds them that if they do not repent, that he will follow through with that. <laughs> so, so to bring that history back up is significant. And that's what I think is going on with the nakedness thing, is that these, these things that are brought up, that they, they're, they obviously, think of this way, when you use a metaphor, people have to understand the terms you're using or else it doesn't make any sense. The whole purpose of a metaphor is to help people to understand something more clearly that they don't understand. And so you take a something that they're very familiar with, right, to shed light on something that they're not so familiar with. And so rather than going out and grabbing what's going on in some ancient Near Eastern culture, it makes more sense that the people would be familiar with their own history, right, and the dealings that God had with them and the words that God had given to them, his own revelation, now, it's not just the mother who's in trouble, but the very ones, the, the children who are to go to their mother and contend with her, they also find themselves under judgment. They're also, also guilty. Verse 4, also I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. So again, he goes back and connects to chapter 1, verse 6, lo ruhamah, no mercy. So he brings up this issue again here of having no mercy or no compassion because they are children of harlotry, or to say it this way, they, they have proven themselves to be who they are, children of prostitution. That is to say that they have the same heart and the same habits of harlotry as the one who gave birth to them. They have the same nature and they pursue the same idolatries as their mother. And regarding the heart and regarding the habits of their mother, verse 5, for their mother, yes... Yeah, did it? Oh no, you're supposed to be taking good notes now. You're supposed... It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Okay, suspense is killing her over here. Suspense. Verse five: For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, "I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink." So think about this. She's saying, I, I am selling myself to them because that is where I get my stuff. <laughs> right? I will go after my lovers. And in this verse, the emphasis is on I will. So there's this, this there's a commitment here to, you might say, spiritual apostasy. This is not, they're not just stumbling into this. Again, these are deliberate choices that they are making and that she has made and is making in spite of the many warnings, even going, again, all the way back to the very outset. Again, this isn't a pop quiz. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14, You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. (laughs) Right? It's not a pop quiz. The Lord's already... 
said, don't do this, right? Deuteronomy 8.19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Judges, you remember this cycle throughout the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 verse 11 then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served their Baals, right? So we already have this Baal worship going back to the book of Judges. They forsook the Lord, verse 12, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Now, back there in Hosea, verse 5 of chapter 2, notice what Gomer said. Where she said, and you get, the, you get the impression that this is an internal conversation. This sort of, um, like she's saying to herself, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and water, my wool and flax, my oil and my drink. And notice how she's thinking here, okay? And this is, I think, this is about self-deception, okay? Because she gets, she gets this all wrong, right? She thinks, she thinks that she knows where her stuff come from, comes from. But her thinking is warped, and this is what happens. And I could give you example after example after example from counseling of this. Immorality and idolatry hampers our ability to reason correctly, especially regarding moral and spiritual matters. So what happens is that the more, the more that a person indulges in sin, the more that their mind is corrupted sometimes to the point where someone's awareness of God is, seems to be to- totally dead. So there's this downward spiral. Sin corrupts, you might say, sin corrupts their thinking or their cognition, which leads to more sin, which brings about further corruption of the mind, which leads to further moral degradation. And there comes a time when we cannot live with that internal conflict. It, it's like, because it, in other words, we still have remnants of the truth still there, right? Our conscience is still active. And so, but we're continuing to make these deliberate choices to ignore that, right? And so we're choosing sin. And as we're choosing sin, then our mind and our thinking is getting turned around, right? It's getting con- confusing. And our compass is like, it's, it's not working right. And, and, our, and our, 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 our conscience is beginning to be seared and, and our sensitivity to sin is being... Dulled, and so we have this conflict, and what happens is we either make one of two choices. We either repent or we abandon our beliefs, right? I mean, we either, we either adhere to our beliefs, right? We say we, we, we know the Lord. We say we love the Lord. We say this is, this is who God is and this is who we are. We either do that. We submit to those things, and we believe that by faith, and we turn away from our sin and our idolatry, or we just keep going down that road, and we begin to jettison and get rid of our beliefs, make those compromises. So this should alert us to the dangers of indulging in sin. Indulging in sin has a cognitive effect on our understanding and perception. Folks, there are times I've been talking to people that are, if you want to say, smart people, brilliant people, right? When it comes to just 
whatever. I mean, in the business world or just general knowledge or history or politics. And they're, they, they know a lot of information, but when you begin to put moral decisions in front of them, it, their understanding is just out, goes out the window. It's right, and people are making decisions, and you're looking at this, and you're just like, I don't, how did they do that? <laughs> it's like, how, do, how did they just make that decision? That is, that is so obviously foolish. In fact, it's not just foolish because it's unbiblical, but it's, it's self, it, it's harming them. The things that they're doing are actually, they're shooting themselves in the foot, and they can see the wound in their foot. It's like they, and they're feeling the pain, and yet they're continuing to make these ungodly decisions. It just doesn't make any sense. But that's what happens. That, that's what goes on. We delude ourselves, right? When you're double-minded, right, then, then you end up in this state, self-deceived. I mean, I see this where uh, it just is, is an obvious example and maybe even tied into to our, uh, our, our text here, but in the cases of, of immorality, you, you see a, a person that's a married individual who begins to have emotional attachments to another person. They start to justify it, right? They're just a listening ear. They're just trying to help people. And then, they, and then as that sort of grows in their hearts, there's a detachment that occurs with their spouse because they can't live with those competing affections. And as their affections increase for this other person, their affections decrease for their husband or wife. And even if their spouse detects these things, and they call that relationship into question, defenses go up, rationalization, self-justification, because they think that they are the exception. And in very small increments, these things cloud how they perceive reality. So the more that they sin, the more that, that reality becomes fuzzy and unclear, and things that were once very clear to them now are no longer. And David, this is a good quote from David Pallison. He says, most sin is invisible to the sinner because it is simply how the sinner works, how the sinner perceives, wants, and interprets things. Once we see sin for what it really is, madness and evil intentions in our hearts, absence of any fear of God, slavery to various passions, then it becomes easier to see how sin is the immediate and specific problem all counseling deals with at, at every moment, not a general and remote problem. The core insanity of the human heart is what we violate is that we violate the first commandment. We love anything except God unless our madness is checked by grace. Now, in light of these verses, what do we learn about the anatomy of Israel's idolatry? Let me just give you three things here, okay? Idolatry always involves deep personal betrayal. Idolatry always involves deep personal betrayal. Israel's disobedience to God's demand for exclusive worship and continuous spiritual fidelity was not viewed by him as simply a legal infraction. Even though we have this legal language, right, that he's bringing them to, into the courtroom, don't get the idea that God is just simply concerned about them breaking the rules. Okay? This is also about cruel disloyalty. Okay? That is to say, Gomer's act of hunting down other lovers requires her to simultaneously turn her back on Hosea. Likewise, when Israel chases after other gods, she also simultaneously and blatantly rejects her God and betrays his love. Trust me, if you've ever sat down or talked to somebody that has gone through the betrayal of adultery 
and, if, and you're, all you want to talk about is that it was just, you want to get into that sort of legal, uh, t- technical language of that, you know, they promised this and they broke that. All that's true. I'm not saying that's not true. What I'm saying is it is deeply personal, right? It's not just you cross the line, <laughs> okay? You sinned against a person, not just a standard. So sin is personal and idolatry is always personal. It's why I think in James where it speaks about if a person violates one command, one, one, one law that he violates the entire thing, why is that true? And I say the reason that is true is because sin is personal. When you, when you violate a law, you're violating a relationship, right? And so whether it's one or a million, okay, for that purpose, it's irrelevant, you sinned against that person. And to do that against the Lord, who is infinite, wise, loving, He's your creator, <laughs> to do that is, is, is grievous, as condemning as if you had done it a million times. So sin is personal, and that is true of idolatry. Another thing here is that idolatry always involves misplaced gratitude. Idolatry always involves misplaced gratitude. Where did Gomer believe that her sustenance and prosperity came from? Right? Not from her generous husband, right? But her adulterous lovers. And this is what happens with idolatry. We give credit where credit is not due. Thinking that the prosperity that we enjoy finds its source in someone else or in some cases in ourselves, right? So we're either giving credit to others or we're giving credit to our, ourselves, our own strength and wisdom, So we're trusting in ourselves, but in the end, we fail to give God the credit that He deserves. And so we worship ourselves, we clamor for others to recognize and admire our accomplishments, we we insist that people praise us, we are intoxicated with our own greatness, we crave for others to applaud our acts of sacrifice and service, we covet the glory that belongs exclusively to the Lord and need to repent of such proud and wicked desires. So that is to say this, when, when, you're, when, you are, when you begin to recognize a pattern in your life of ingratitude, you need to think about idolatry. When, when you begin to grumble and you begin to complain about your life and about the people in your life and circumstances in your life, just remember, you're not complaining about people. <laughs> your, your complaint is to the Lord, right? Which is a, ingratitude reveals heart idolatry. So don't just, don't just, in fact, I think this is one of the respectable sins. Jerry Bridges, maybe in his book, talks about just being not thankful because we, we, that's just, we're, we're one of those, oh yeah, well that's not a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal, <laughs> right? First Corinthians chapter 10, I mean, it's listed right there with immorality and these other sins that Israel committed. Grumbling and complaining is a huge deal because it reveals in the heart that we're not fully trusting in the Lord himself. And so use that as a litmus test in your life to say, if, if, I'm, if I'm not grateful for the things that God is sovereignly bringing into my life, then I've got an idolatry problem. And you've got to figure that out. You've got you to get under the surface there and find out what's going on in your heart. So idolatry always involves misplaced gratitude. And then we would maybe add this. Idolatry always involves a form of spiritual amnesia. That is to say, in all of this... Israel forgot God. In fact, this will be the slat. You'll notice down in verse 13, he's going to say that explicitly. But she forgot him who lavished his love on her. She forgot him who brought her out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And this wasn't, again, accidental because she deliberately... The idea here is that she deliberately put Yahweh out of her mind. So it's not like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a willful, willful forgetting, which, again, was something that God had warned her about time and time again. And you can jot these down, Deuteronomy 4, 9, Deuteronomy 6... Verses 10 to 15, Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 18. Again, not not a pop quiz here, okay? The Lord said time and time again, when you have eaten and you're satisfied and you, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He's given you, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. There's warning after warning after warning that especially in times of prosperity... And when the, the seas are more calm, right, and things are going good in your life, be careful about this issue, right? Uh, be careful about this forgetting of God, forgetting about your responsibilities, forgetting about God's works, forgetting about His, His goodness. So again, this is what happens with idolatry. We fail to bring to mind the glorious person and work of God. You might say simply, we ignore the giver. Right? She's very aware of the gifts, right? But very ignorant, or like I said, choosing to not remember the giver. So that, that is the anatomy of Israel's idolatry. All right, well, what about the Lord's response, the Lord's just response to Israel's idolatry? Well, it's pretty clear that Gomer's interpretation and reasoning and actions are, are ludicrous. And yet, Yahweh in His mercy sets gracious hindrances concerning her hot pursuits of her lovers. Notice there in verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So she, she, she wants to pursue them. She wants to pursue her lovers. And the Lord is basically saying, But I'm going to erect this maze in order to keep her from following all the way through on that plan. And so I will place massive blockades in her life to hinder her. First, I will erect a tall, confining hedge of thorns. Right? I think about some of these movies where, the, where they, these hedge mazes, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this so that it serves as a form of frustration. And second, I will build this impenetrable it's the idea of an encircling wall. It's actually literally you'd say, I will wall up her wall. So the Lord's going to do these things. God himself is going to create circumstances that would make it impossible for Gomer, or again, Israel, to locate, much less travel down those well-worn paths to idolatry. He's going to in- interrupt or impede her quest for sin. Verse 7 she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. So here she is, bent on following her lovers, and God is going to put these different hindrances in front of her, uh, a divinely constructive, protective maze. <laughs> I just thought, how, if, you just, if, if, you could, if you could see behind the scenes, you, know, you, just, you just start to think about your life. Think about the number of times that you were in hot pursuit of some sin. It could be, I mean, just fill in the blank. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be immorality. It could be any, 
anything, and the Lord just said, either that's off limits altogether, it's just not for you, or he said, that's not necessarily in and of itself a wicked or bad thing, but you're, you want it too badly. <laughs> you want it too much. So it's what the Puritans would call an inordinate desire, right? It's okay to desire it. It's just you desire it to the point that you're now worshiping that thing or you're desiring that thing to the point where you're willing to bow down to some idol, something in your life in order to achieve that or to get that or to have it. And you just think about the number of times that we just are totally unaware, but that God in his kindness is erecting a hedge of thorns (laughs) and erecting a wall around us to prevent us from doing that. He knows what we want, folks, right? I mean, he knows the desires of our hearts. And we're going after that thing, and the Lord in his grace just is putting up blockade after blockade after blockade after blockade. It's, I mean, it's, it's amazing, I mean, to think about that and just on a daily basis, just the, the, the providence of God and his goodness to us to do that. So she's bent on this, but God is constructing this protective maze, and these divine restraints prompt this response from her. It says, then she, she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than, than, than now. Now, this is, a, this is the first time we come across this term. It's actually, it, the, the root of this term is, a, is the language of repentance, where she says, I will go back, I will return again. This, this word for repentance is all throughout the, 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 the minor prophets. Uh, and you'll see, she says this, for it was better for me then than now, which sounds good, that she seems to acknowledge that which she really knew all along, but this will prove not to be as we'll see, uh, a biblically defined repentance or a, you might say, or a permanent repentance. In fact, it's not, I just, this were my, I just think, okay, think about why she's going back. Is she going back because she hates her sin? Is she going back because she's grieved over her sin? Is she going back because she's gripped with the depth of her betrayal? Well, not at least in this text, Right? What, what this text seems to be saying is that she was going back because she was frustrated in her attempt to get with her lovers, right? That's different, right? I mean, I think about the prodigal son, right, in the, um, in the pig pen and saying, you know, this, the, where I'm at, look, look at me and, you know, think about his past and what it would, would have been like to be with his father and he repents. And, of course, that we know is a... Is a, is a uh, an illustration of true repentance. But here it's, it just seems like it's a little different than that. It's not that she's come to the end of herself and sees her sin for what it really is. It seems to be more of an emphasis on the fact that she can't have what she really wants. And so rather than just bang your head against the wall. By the way, have you seen that commercial where the guy's banging his head in the attic? Yeah, I love that commercial. So it's, <laughs> or the one got his hand stuck in the candy machine. So it's just like some people just bang their head. They just, it's like they, they enjoy it, right? Well, this, Gomer doesn't do this. She's saying, I, I'm tired of banging my head against the wall, so I think I'll go back because it was better back then than it is right now. just seems to be a different kind of motivation. Now, the next verses address and prove the falsity and foolishness of her reasoning mentioned back in verse 5. You remember she said, I'll go after my lover's who give me my bread and my water, my wool and flax, oil and drink. So in verse 8 says, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which 
they used for Baal. Notice the plural form here. It's they rather than she, which indicates that the application of this section is ultimately to God's people because it's, 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 it's tying into Gomer, but then it's using the plural, but they, because it's making this connection to the nation. And this not knowing that he mentions here is, is highly, again, this is highly culpable ignorance, right? Because the Lord had spelled it out long ago in his stipulations, the, in his covenant, and the consequences or curses for disobedience. She had clearly disregarded all of those clear revelations from God and in a deliberate and high-handed way used God's blessings for idolatrous worship for Baal. Now, all these other gods, and we we may come back and touch on this later on, but these other gods were primarily in uh, agrarian societies or agricultural societies whose economy was based heavily on on producing and maintaining crops and farmland. And so they had all sorts of gods and goddesses which were dedicated to prosperity uh, in those societies, dealt with the fertility and things like that. So you had God, the god of grain, the god of cattle, etc. So they would turn to those things in order to have good crops and healthy herds. And yet Israel knew, who knew the one true God from its conception, and God had done so much to establish her and to lead her and to love her, and yet she would go and do these things. She would turn to these things. She, she had all, you might say this way, she had always had this Gomer heart. And so verses 9 and following outline the consequences for this spiritual forsaking of God. And you'll just notice, starting in verse 9, all of the I will statements. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and flax given to her to cover, for her, to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness or uncleanness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I also will put an end to all her gaiety feasts, new moons, Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. So this is, this is what's going on in Israel. They're trying to merge the prescribed feast of the Old Testament calendar that God had revealed with calf worship and Baal worship of all different kinds. We call that syncretism. This was a problem for Israel where they were, they were taking some of, the, some of what God had prescribed, but then they were going out and adopting all these cultic practices and they were putting it all together and not seeing the danger in that and, and the hypocrisy of it. And it's just something that God would not tolerate. He, he would not tolerate the hypocrisy of, of the kings who were leading the nation to do this. He would not hip, tolerate the hypocrisy of those priests that were leading in spiritual worship, claiming to be worshiping Yahweh, but then adding all of that paganism into the mix. In fact, Isaiah chapter 1 talks about this, sort of, it's also dealing with sort of on a national scale. But in Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, and you rulers of Sodom, <laughs> give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he's actually identifying them with these, again, tying back into Israel's history, what are, you, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless, sacri- your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon.
Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though, you're multipli- even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with blood. Again, this is just, this is just talking, what's that? Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10. But this is, this is just the idea of, it's about externalism, folks. It's about going through the motions. It's about, it's about just saying, oh, well, the Lord wants us to do this, right? And so we're going to do it, but then not realizing all that idolatry that's going on in the heart. And God is just saying, I'm sick of it. It turns my stomach to know that you're in one sense trying to check the box of, of, of following what I told you to do and being totally unconcerned about your heart condition. God says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And again, they were warned from the very beginning. You could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and God talks about this, and He talks about all those curses that will come. In fact, in Deuteronomy 28, He says... Uh, you shall bring, this is in verse 38, you shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you will not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives will all drop off. God, I mean, these very same things that they're saying, these are the things that my lovers, she's saying, these are things my lovers give to me, and God is saying, no, those are my things. <laughs> and if you violate this these uh, commands, then you're going to do that. It's just going to be vanity. You're going to do it, and it's not going to produce anything. Economic agrarian disaster. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and figs, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. So this is indicating the land is going to revert to this sort of like wild state, like not this, this cultivated uh, uh, land where they can grow these things, but it's just going to go wild again. And then comes a summary, really, in verse 13 of God's indictments and His his appropriate judgments. Verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer, literally to burn, sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord." Or literally, the verse ends with the utterance of Yahweh. It's like, listen up, folks. God is talking. (laughs) This is God speaking. So that is to say, God will kindly put in place gracious hindrances so that His people will not continue in the delusion of idolatry. And He will remove and destroy the very blessings given by His hand that were erroneously attributed to other gods, returning her, in a sense, to the state in which she was before he found her. And there will be a national punishment for their pursuits after false gods. And this will be her sad portion. Nakedness, waste, hunger, thirst, shame, sadness, loneliness, and desolation. Or as Dwayne Garrett says this in his commentary, Israel will lose everything, the land will be emptied, and the people will go into exile. And to think not only would Yahweh take away everything he had given, but the enemies, which in this case were who? Who would be the ones, the instrument God would use to deal with the northern tribes? Assyria, okay, 
that the very people, right, those Assyrians that God would send to do this might actually have driven them out naked because there was a known practice by the Assyrians in that day of stripping their captives naked and parading them as a message to potential rebels. So there's this, God is going to take everything away and quite literally when the Assyrians come, they may actually be carted off naked, not only as a form of shame, but really as a threat to say, if anybody considers rebelling against us, this is what's going to happen to them. So how are you doing? Do you take your relationship with your Creator serious enough? Have you been viewing your sin as not just breaking a rule, but of offending the Lord deeply and personally, or of betraying His love for you? What about the issue of ingratitude? Have you begun to complain and grumble about the people and circumstances in your life? And if so, what does that say about your worship? What does that say about your heart in relation to the Lord? And what about your spiritual forgetfulness? Have you turned away from God because of the difficulties of life? Because we talked about this. There are different things. People respond to these things in different ways, right? Sometimes it's the difficulties of life and the trials that come, which, you know, scriptures tell us we, we need to learn from those things, right? That they, they ought to produce humility in our lives and, and, and they ought to improve, uh, uh, produce God, godliness and enduring character and perseverance in those things. But some people turn away during difficult times, right? They, they harden their heart during difficulties. Or, and this is probably more of, again, the context in which Hosea is, is living, and that is that, you know, have you turned away from the Lord because things are calm and comfortable, right? Because you're not in a trial, because things aren't hard right now. Things are, you're doing pretty good. And, and again, the thing here is that the northern tribes on the outside seem to be doing well, but all the time they're violating all of God's, all those conditions, right? But nothing's happening. Externally, at least, they're, they're constantly, daily violating God's commands and His law, but they're not seeing the immediate consequence of that. And so they're deluded, right? Here comes this self-deception. Their thinking gets warped. The Scriptures tell us, exhort us, do not forget what you've seen. Do not forget what you've heard. Do not forget the Lord. Do not forget what He's done. Do not forget what He has promised and what He has required of you. So that's the anatomy of Israel's idolatry, the Lord's just response to it. And with that, you would think God is done, right? Again, it's like verse 13, it's like, that's it. It's over. They're toast. But there is good news to come. Verse 14 And through the end of this chapter, more assurances of a future restoration, and those are the things we'll look at next time in the second half of chapter 2. Okay.